Coming up today, Morgan finds out what happens when an AI company steals your face, and Matt Burgess explores the most vulnerable place on the internet. You're listening to The Wired Podcast, your essential weekly guide to the future of tech, science, business, and culture. I'm your host, Amit Katwala, and joining me this week are Matt Burgess... Hello. And Morgan Mika. Hello. This was the week when the value of Bitcoin plunged to a two-year low after the near collapse of crypto exchange FTX. Its rival Binance pulled out of a deal to rescue the firm, citing concerns over its handling of customers' money. It was also the week when Cyprus opened an inquiry into the development of spyware on its territory after a draft European Parliament committee report said the island was an export hub for surveillance malware. Thanks for that fact, Morgan. I also have a fact this week. I learned that Neanderthals may have used aspirin and penicillin for pain relief. This is according to scientists who are studying ancient DNA found in the teeth of Neanderthal fossils from 40,000 years ago. So how did they potentially know about this? Like, in, did they find something in the teeth or like... Yeah, so they basically looked at scraps of material, you know, dead bacteria that were in the teeth of these fossils. And they found traces of bark from the poplar tree, which contains a chemical that's related to aspirin. And they also found signs of penicillin mould. So, you know, the same mould that we derive penicillin from today. So, you know, there's this famous story about Alexander Fleming accidentally discovering penicillin. But, you know, Neanderthals were maybe doing it tens of thousands of years before that, which I thought was super, super interesting. Right, let's move on to our first story this week, which is about privacy and one man's quest to reclaim his stolen face. Morgan, Europe has some of the world's strictest privacy laws, but there's one industry which is not really paying much attention, as you've been finding out. Yeah, so Europe has this problem with a growing industry of face recognition search engines. So companies in this industry all operate slightly differently, but they are all basically search engines where instead of searching for a person using their name, imagine how you might use Google, for example, you can upload a picture of them and basically search using their face. So the idea is that these search engines can find photos of this face anywhere on the web. So if there's a picture of you on blogs or social media, maybe you've wandered into the background of someone else's photos, it's pretty kind of wide reaching. Um, So now European regulators claim that this business model isn't legal in Europe because it basically relies on the indiscriminate scraping of EU citizens' data. So that means kind of sending bots out into the internet to gather pictures of people without their consent. So the EU considers a person's face part of their biometric data and they consider this data to be kind of extra sensitive because basically, unlike a name, you can't hide your face features when you leave your house. So that basically means they're a really potent way to identify you. And that's why the EU thinks your face deserves extra protection from surveillance. But some of these companies have scraped literally billions of faces. So I'm not exaggerating by saying billions. So they can't really go to all of those people and ask, hey, can we use your face? That's just not really going to work. So basically, there's this standoff. The EU says that face search engines that the business model is illegal but if the companies accept that they wouldn't have a business anymore so one of the most famous companies working in this area is called clearview ai they're based in new york and they sell their face search engine to law enforcement agencies in the u.s which is understandably quite controversial they've been telling investors that the company is on track to have 100 billion photos in its database this year so that averages out around 14 photos for every single person on earth 
that you met someone who is not only trying to get their face removed from Clearview Systems, but also from other company systems as well. Yeah, so I spoke to Matthias Marx for the piece. He's a German activist and security researcher. So two years ago, Marx read about Clearview and he just wanted to know if the company had any photos of his face in their database. So he basically just emailed them to ask. A month after sending that email, he received a reply with two screenshots attached. So the pictures that Clearview sent him saying that these were the ones they found in their database, they were about a decade old. Both of them showed marks looking pretty fresh faced in a blue T-shirt, taking part in a Google competition for engineers. So Marx knew that the pictures existed. He remembered that a photographer had been there taking pictures of the competition that day. But unlike Clearview, he did not know a photographer was selling them on stock photo website Alamy without his permission. So Marx's battle with Clearview is quite well known. He filed Europe's first data protection complaint against the company. But his battle for control of his face has not stopped with Clearview. He's now wrestling with two other face search engines that are also monetizing his face. So what are these companies? Are these companies doing similar things to Clearview? What are they called and what's their kind of USP? So there are similarities, but they do all operate slightly differently. So when Mark searched another facial recognition search engine called PimEyes for his face, that platform unearthed even more pictures than Clearview. So one showed him ironically giving a speech about privacy. Another showed a local newspaper clipping from 2014 where he'd been pictured for providing free Wi-Fi to refugees. And another showed him at an event hosted by a political party where he says he was discussing local issues such as bike paths. So, I mean, just from those three pictures, you can see how these images reveal quite a lot about him. And remember, these face search engines, they don't just show their clients the pictures. They also provide the links to the websites where they found those pictures. And those links can reveal even more information about a person. So PimEyes, which is currently run by a man in Georgia who I spoke to for the piece, is slightly different from Clearview. Anyone can access the website, so you don't have to be a law enforcement part of a law enforcement agency to see these pictures. So anyone can go on the website, upload a picture to search and see what comes back. It does have a subscription model for you to be able to see the links, but it's basically much more open. So PimEyes has incurred controversy before. So after a series of news articles criticised its privacy policies in 2020, its previous owners, two Polish entrepreneurs, decided to sell. But those two guys, they didn't disappear from the industry. Instead, they started another company. That company is called Public Mirror. It's also a face search engine. Um, and that's just targeted at the public relations industries. And guess what? One thing that PimEyes and Public Mirror have in common is Marx's face. So in March this year, Marx discovered that Public Mirror had four images of his face in its files. So I thought I would give this a go. And it's super quick. Uh, like I literally could have done it in the time you've just been explaining that there. So I, I did just before we recorded, we're recording this on Zoom, I took a photo of my face and uploaded it to PimEyes. And it is like quite scary. Actually, what pictures did about, you find of yourself? Well, it brought back about 200 photos. Uh, there was a lot of repeats. Uh, so maybe like maybe 30, 20 or 30 like individual pictures, mostly things that I knew were out there. So it'd be things like byline pictures or like events that I'd spoken out or like videos that I'd done for Wired, things like that. But what struck me was that these were like a bunch of different lighting conditions, a bunch of different angles taken over the span of like a decade with like very different haircuts and weight gain and loss and stuff like that. I looked quite different in some of these pictures, but it was able to identify me in, in all of them. And it didn't bring up anyone who wasn't me. 
which oh, is super interesting. Because yeah, when so I when did that... it, I did it and it brought up lots of images of me, including images that I didn't know even existed from like a decade ago. But it also brought up loads of images of women who weren't me. A lot of these were from explicit websites. So women have in the middle of doing porn and it had linked to those websites and the face search engine thought that those women were me when they weren't me. And so I thought that was really interesting. So it's interesting that not everybody has that problem. Yeah, either, either that or it just means that there's not much demand in the porn industry for someone who looks like me. <laughs> um, the, um, yeah, so the, it did bring up one photo that I didn't know was online. So it was from like an event, a press event I went to like, 10 years ago where they were obviously taking like photos of the room and stuff like that and then they'd uploaded them to like Flickr or something like that so there was one picture on there that I was like oh I don't know what that is and then like, you have to subscribe to find out the link like, click on the link to find out where it actually was on the website but I thought yeah it was super interesting to try I mean god knows what they're going to do with that data now but they, I think in your piece you say that they don't actually store the pictures that you upload and they just kind of index it yeah, so, I mean, not that much is known about PIMIs, but something that privacy activists told me is different between Clearview and PIMIs is Clearview has a database, they said, and it stores pictures in that database where they believe that PIMIs carries out that search when you upload the picture. Um, so that's an interesting differentiation between the two. I think it's kind of interesting because we, we are obviously, I mean, not famous or anything like that but relatively in the public eye and that there are probably more pictures of us in a journalistic capacity than there would be for your average person particularly on publicly available websites like there are thousands of photos of me on facebook but none of them are crawlable by these search engines but it's also interesting what doesn't come up i mean i took part in a wired event recently i know that the photographer who is there at that wired event has a whole website where there are pictures of me at multiple wired events and none of those were in the search which I mean, it's interesting what comes up and what doesn't come up. And I mean, the website is still relatively new. So what will this be like in 10 years when the technology has has seriously advanced? This is obviously quite problematic in a whole bunch of ways. But just to play devil's advocate, if I were to take a photo of myself now and upload it to Google's reverse image search, would it not throw up similar results? Yeah, so I did ask privacy activists about this. Um, what's the difference? And I think Google's Google or at least some of the big tech companies have been explicit in saying that they could have done this, that they could have developed the technology to do it, but they perceived it to be too problematic to do that. And so I think if you do that on Google, it's not nearly as accurate as PIMIs would do. And I'm not sure of the technology behind that, but I think I get the impression that is a conscious choice by those companies not to lean into that area of business. Yeah, I guess the problem is that like once it's out there on the public, that's accessible internet, it's sort of out there. But yeah, I think... And- and going We're kind back of getting to that better point, at this, yeah. And going back to that point uh, that I mentioned earlier, I did ask people kind of, what's the difference? I can just put my name, Morgan Mika, into Google and say, and pictures of me will come up. So why is that different to uploading a picture of me um, onto PIMIs and other pictures of me coming up? And it was this point that you could be at a protest or you could be at a political rally and someone, they don't even have to be law enforcement, could take a picture of your face and upload it to a website like PIMIs and it would reveal so much about us, about anyone. And I think what the really interesting thing about Matthias's case shows us is that it's just really difficult to get these pictures taken down again and he's been 
so this one person has been in all these legal cases for going on two years. He's having problems with three different companies and he's struggling to get any to make any headway. Yeah, it's super interesting stuff. So, so Matthias, the guy you spoke to, has this problem where obviously his face keeps being uploaded to these face search engines again and again. He can ask them to take it down, but they'll just kind of scan again and find it again and, and upload it. And if these face search engines are illegal under European privacy laws, why can't the European regulators just shut them down? Yeah, so that's what's really interesting is how difficult it is to kind of enforce these privacy laws. So since Marx filed his complaint, other people in privacy and other privacy groups across Europe have done the same thing. So in, in response, in October, the French Data Protection Authority became the third EU regulator to fine Clearview 20 million euros. So that's the maximum possible fine it can make for violating EU privacy rules. Greece and Italy have already done the same. Yet Clearview has not removed EU faces from its platform and groups involved in these cases believe that Clearview hasn't paid any of these fines. So this is a major problem because the case against Clearview was supposed to act as a kind of a warning to other companies that face search engines were illegal. But instead, privacy groups are concerned this lack of enforcement is actually sending the opposite message. So because there's such a lack of enforcement, it's really difficult to convince other companies, whether they're based in the EU or not, that there are going to be consequences. Because right now it kind of looks like you can just keep operating in this way. So what do you think happens next? What options does Matthias have? What options do we all have if we want this kind of stuff taken down? So I think it's pretty unclear. So when Matthias started pulling on this thread back in 2020, all he wanted was for one company to stop collecting pictures of his face. It's still not entirely clear if Clearview has deleted images of him from its website. Uh, He believes that even if he asks them to delete those images, if the company is constantly scraping the internet for pictures, he believes they'll just find his face again and he'll keep being catalogued. Although Clearview didn't respond to my questions about whether that was true. Um, And so now he just wants regulators to find a way to stop the whole industry from collecting pictures of Europeans altogether. But for that to happen, it kind of needs one company to be made an example of that. And it's not it's still not clear whether the whether they have the enforcement powers to be able to do that. It's fascinating stuff. Thanks so much for that, Morgan. Our second story this week is about the most vulnerable place in the internet infrastructure, which might not be where you expect. I was expecting some data centre in a secret bunker somewhere, but it's actually around Egypt. But before we get into that, we need to explain a little bit about the subsea cables which carry the world's data. Matt Burgess, take it away. So most of our interactions with the internet these days are done wirelessly. So when you're getting online through your phone and connecting to data, um, that information is coming from cell towers. Uh, And when you're at home or in an office or in public places, you'll often be connecting to the internet through Wi-Fi that's on your devices. However, this in some ways isn't really an accurate representation of how the internet really works in terms of the infrastructure. Um, So the cloud isn't obviously a literal thing in the sky. Uh, Instead, most of the data we rely upon moves underwater. Um, The internet itself is made up of various different networks which combine servers, data centers, and a hell of a lot of cabling. Um, And really sort of 
linking all of this together around the world is a vast sea of underwater, vast network of underwater cables that help us to get online. So around the world, there are around 800,000 miles of cables running along the seabed, which connect uh, continents and keep us all connected to each other. So London is connected to New York, Australia is connected to California, Asia to Europe, and there are hundreds of these cables going around the world. Um, and these cables themselves, just to just to talk about them physically for a second, they are about the width of a hosepipe um, and they do literally run along the ocean floor. That's not sort of like an exaggeration or anything. Um, and this, because they're quite fragile, really, they can be quite vulnerable to damage. Um, ships quite often will um, sever them. Um, there's been instance of sort of uh, environmental damage from earthquakes and things like that that cut these cables as well. And overall, they're, they're really quite fragile. So this network of cables has existed for decades, but there is like one particular pinch point where a lot of them converge. And this is a region of the world where there's particular concern about these cables and about their vulnerability and what it can mean for the global internet. Yeah, and here we are zooming in a bit, as you mentioned uh, at the top, on Egypt and the area around the Red Sea. Um, so this part of the world is considered one of the largest choke points for subsea internet cables. And arguably that being one of the biggest choke points itself makes it one of the most vulnerable places for the internet in general. Um, so there are 16 uh, submarine cables that pass uh, along the 1200 mile stretch of the Red Sea and around the Gulf of Suez before they reach land in Egypt. And once these cables reach land in Egypt, there is no route to the Mediterranean Sea um, underwater at that stage. Um, so at that point, all of the cables hop onto land and traverse across Egypt before they get to the Mediterranean Sea and ultimately end up connecting Asia and Europe. Um, and to give you a bit of an idea of how important this area is, it's been estimated that around 17% of the world's uh, internet traffic travels along these cables and passes through Egypt. And, and last year as well, the region had a capacity of 178 terabits. And to put that into some more context, that is 178 million megabytes per second. And if you compare that to, say, the average internet speed in a US home, um, that is 167 megabytes per second. So we're talking vast amounts of internet capacity and speed and, and data that travels through this area of the world. So as you say, these cables have been placed for decades. So what's the risk here? Is it like just having a kind of pinch point makes it tricky, a bit like we saw with the actual Suez Canal in terms of global infrastructure and that getting blocked and the big chaos that caused? Would it be something similar with this? Yeah, so it is a little bit similar to, as you say, that uh, incident in the Suez Canal when um, when everything uh, was going through, well, when the ever given, ever given ship was stuck and everything sort of had to be backed up. There are like analogies that are similar, not only because it is obviously in the same part of the world. So experts I was speaking to for this story tell me that there, where there is a choke point for internet cables like this, it creates a single point of failure. There is more risk uh, to this area because there are a lot of cables that go through it. And if multiple cables are to fail or be damaged at the same time, then it can have huge knock-on effects. So in June this year, there was damage to two internet cables in the area. Uh, one of these was the Asia-Africa-Europe-1 internet cable, which everybody will obviously be familiar with, um, which travels 15,000 uh, miles along the seafloor and connects Hong Kong um, to uh, Marseille in France. And this was uh, severed briefly as it passed through Europe. We don't know what caused the damage or why at this stage, um, but this outage um, impacted seven different countries uh, and also the, the cloud services that Amazon, Google and Microsoft apply uh, or run. So in 
in this incident, Ethiopia lost 90% of its connectivity and Somalia lost about 85% of its connectivity. Thankfully, the outage only lasted a few hours, but it just shows sort of the, the scale of the potential immediate impact that can be caused by this. And that isn't the only outage that has happened in this area. Um, the Red Sea itself is only about sort of like 200 miles wide and isn't that deep, which uh, compared to other seas as well, makes it potentially more likely that uh, ship's anchors could disrupt these cables if they're going over the areas that are in. But there have also been incidents of uh, sort of terrorism and some people trying to steal the metal from some of these cables um, in this area. And the EU uh, earlier this year marked it as one of the biggest risks to internet security. Yeah, I guess if you wanted to just cause massive chaos, these cables would be a good target for kind of terrorist organisations and other groups like that. It seems like odd why why is egypt such a choke point like why do all these cables have to run through egypt when they could presumably kind of run anywhere so this is probably linked to the suez canal as well uh in in many ways because it is in a very similar geographical location and it's probably best when we're talking about why egypt to start with the literal geography of the area so internet industry experts say that it's best to put big internet cables underwater because generally it is safer than having them run across land it's harder for people to tamper with them there's less damage that can potentially occur and if you look at a world map there aren't any obvious ways to connect uh, asia and europe other than through the red sea through the gulf of suez and then across land in egypt really so it's basically the fastest and the most direct route which means shorter cables less time to build the cables cheaper to build the cables as well um whereas if you were going all the way around africa for instance there are um a and there are a couple of cables to do so it's much longer as a route which will also increase latency times as well for sort of data being transferred and loading and also the second uh, region of why Egypt is a choke point and a risk as well is because of the geopolitics of the area as well so there are some or other alternative routes that could be created through sections of the Middle East but these come with uh, risk for the companies and the consortiums that build the cables so one of the people that I was speaking to for this story told me that every time that somebody tries to draw up alternative routes, they end up looking at going through Syria or Iraq, Iran or Afghanistan. And obviously all of those countries have had uh, various risks uh, and been unstable to various different degrees during the last couple of decades of internet development. And on that point for it, for example, there was a, a cable called the Jadi cable, which um, bypassed Egypt uh, and went through Syria, but was shut down not long after it opened because of Syria's civil war and hasn't been reopened since. So just highlights the uh, some of the risks that are in the area as well. So I'm interested in like what role the Egyptian authorities play in this, because I guess having these cables kind of run across your territory gives you quite a strong hand or puts you in quite a powerful position uh, when it comes to internet connectivity globally. It, it definitely does. And it's something that Egypt is aware of. Um, when I was trying to report this story, I did try to speak to multiple um, Egyptian authorities, the government ministry of communications and the regular telecoms regulator and um, also telecoms Egypt, which is the main internet provider in the in the country. But none of these companies were particularly willing to talk. I couldn't speak to any of them. So um, a little bit of sort of understanding Egypt's role in this comes from telecoms companies that go through the area and sort of like other reporting as well. So because these cables all travel across land in Egypt, 
um, that allows the country to have some say in the stuff that's passing over its land. So reports have previously stated that Telecom Egypt, which, as I say, is the regulator, uh, is the main telecoms company in the country, um, has essentially a monopoly on sort of the um, prices that are charged for cables that run across the country. And one uh, recent report said that the company has a stranglehold on the market there and um, charges huge costs for cables traveling across the country as well. Um, Telecom Egypt, as I say, didn't reply to a request for comment, but generally the the feeling from a lot of the experts that I spoke to said that this gives the country um, some power in terms of the overall telecom telecommunications market. And, and it's, yeah, it's known this about this for a long time. So is there anything that countries other than Egypt can do to sort of reduce the risk of this bottleneck becoming a problem? I don't know how much it costs to build one of these cables, but you know, is it something that anyone can build? Yeah, so it's it's a lot of money, basically, to answer that question, uh, to build one of these cables. Um, there have been estimates that some of them uh, can cost in the hundreds of millions of dollars. It obviously depends on uh, where the cables are going and the sort of length of, of the cables as well um, and the different landing points that it'll have because these cables, um, while they do run across the sea, they will also sort of like touch land in various different places to uh, essentially sort of be a point where if there is an issue with the cable at sea um then it can still sort of like operate in from some of the landing points as well so it's not like the internet runs from one end of the cable to the other cable and if it's cut um then connectivity goes down um so if you touch land in a few places it sort of builds up some of that resilience which is um the main way that people think about the internet and how it works and how it's created so while there are around 100 incidents on these cables a year um the amount just building more of them and the amount of them means that the internet is more stable. So if you have more cables, there's more different ways that the internet can be routed down them. So in a lot of instances, when a cable is damaged or it does go down, there are alternate routes for this data to travel against. So if there is a if there's a break in the cable, your internet connectivity connectivity might be impacted for a little while until that connectivity gets root rerouted in different ways um and i guess one of the the concerns around this area is because there are so many cables in one place then that can uh, potentially be a problem but ultimately to build more resilience you need more cables um so satellite inter- internet connections like starlink are not particularly uh, built for this amount of data that travels via cables and ultimately they also rely on cables as well um, before the satellites become involved Um, And in Egypt, there are more landing points being built for greater diversity of routes. There's also a space being made for cables to run in concrete ducts on land next to the Suez Canal. The cables don't run in the Suez Canal because, as recent events have shown, that would not be a sensible idea. Um, But ultimately, sort of like getting around this issue or building out more resilience in the networks comes down to creating more cables. And one that is happening is called Blue Raman, which is being built by Google. And this cable connects India to France. And while it does go through the Red Sea, it avoids Egypt. It reaches the Mediterranean Sea via Israel instead. But while this is the first cable to go along this alternative route, and people say that it's most likely that other cables will follow this route once um, once the Google one is in and working, it's also just a geopolitical challenge as well. So Google has got this cable going through that it's split into two different projects, one being Blue and one being Raman, and essentially um, the different 
the the different parts of it relate to uh, different sort of like geopolitical stress stresses. So blue runs through Israel and into Europe, while Rahman connects Saudi Arabia um, to India, essentially. And it's thought that this was created in this way to avoid Saudi Arabia and Israel which have a very complex relationship, not being involved on the same project. Um, and some of the people that I was speaking to were saying that um, when it comes to building this type of thing, it's obviously very difficult to negotiate and do all of that. But when you've got a company that, such as Google that has got the money to be able to do this, then ultimately that is uh, setting a precedent for a new route that may in the future be hard to replicate or be a challenge to replicate, but could overall i guess increase the the sort of like diversity in the amount of routes there are is that something that we want google to kind of own i mean that seems that seems to me like a bit of a problem google already controls so much of the kind of internet infrastructure in terms of browsers and operating systems for laptops and phones do we want to let a company like google also basically have its finger on the switch of the global internet as well that is a really good question it's something i didn't really get into in this article but in the last few years we have seen google Meta, Facebook, um, and also Microsoft buying a lot more, or I say buying, building a lot more uh, in subsea internet cables. So if you uh, go and look up like maps of subsea cables, you will see that actually increasingly in the last few years, all of these big tech companies have been building and buying and being involved in the creation of all of this new infrastructure. A lot of these projects, though, um, are run by big consortiums. So you can have like 20, 30 different companies all involved in these but i would say that increasingly there has been this increase from google and uh, meta and and microsoft etc to own more of that infrastructure and i think some of the projects are there solely solely owned products um so it is something that probably isn't scrutinized enough but um i think many people would probably say that it is good that some of these companies which are obviously taking up huge amounts of the internet's bandwidth and overall usage and big drivers of all of the traffic that we use online do pay for this in some way but the as you say there is also that question of control and sort of like uh, everything being centralized or given to just a, f- a small number of companies yeah and i guess net neutrality is the other issue right if google runs the cables could they slow down non-google traffic and you know things i know there are laws against this in various ter- territories but that could be another concern um if you've enjoyed either of these two stories, do let us know on podcast at wired.co.uk. Have you perhaps done a reverse image search for your own face and found something shocking? If you have, please tell us. <laughs> we want to know. Uh, we've also got some feedback, Morgan. Yeah, so this week we received a message from Anna, who is replying to my facts last week about how travelling by train in some parts of Europe is actually getting worse, not better. So she wanted to share her story of travelling around Europe by train. She says Lisbon and Madrid used to have a daily direct train which was suspended during the COVID-19 lockdowns and it has not yet been reinstated. And she said as a result, to go from Madrid to Lisbon by train, it takes three services and two changes, sad face. So I actually know that Lisbon to Madrid train. I took it once overnight and it was really convenient. You uh, get on in Lisbon and you wake up in Madrid. I can't remember whether I had a sleeping coach or if I just slept on a seat. But Anna, I feel your pain. Recently, I wanted to take a train from Vienna to London and that would have involved the same number of changes, three, to travel the whole way across Europe. Um, So a night train to Cologne, another train to Brussels and then Eurostar to London. So that's kind of nuts that to go from Lisbon to Madrid, neighbouring countries, it's the same similar journey. But the problem from Vienna to London was how expensive it was. So 
that will cost over 200 euros, which is four times the cost of flying the same route. So, yeah, lots of problems with European train travel. Thanks to you, Anna, for writing in. I will say that I think it takes me three changes and two, three services and two changes to get to work some days. So to, to be able to get from Madrid to Lisbon still sounds pretty good. Um, if you have anything you'd like to say to us or ask us, do you get in touch, podcast at wired.co.uk. Um, a little announcement before we go. This is going to be our last episode for a little while. We are taking a short break to work on some exciting changes to the podcast for 2023, but we will be back with a new episode in a few weeks. So we will see you then. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.